Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We gathered a group of community-based medical oncologists to present breast cancer cases from their practices to our faculty of Dr. Ruth O'Regan, Charles Vogel, Aman Buzdar, and Peter Ravden. To begin, Dr. Louise Morell presents a case to Drs. O'Regan and Vogel of a young woman with metastatic triple negative disease. This is a patient whose course began four years ago at age 36. She had a slight delay in diagnosis when her mass in her breast was attributed to a kick from her two-year-old child. When she finally was diagnosed, she had a five-centimeter infiltrating ductal carcinoma, poorly differentiated ERPR, and HER2 negative period. She also had a family history of a mother who had ductal carcinoma in situ at age 55. She was Ashkenazi Jewish and was identified as being BRCA positive. So she decided to do bilateral mastectomy. She had treatment with adriamycin cytoxin dose dense followed by paclitazol. She received all of that chemotherapy, opted not to do radiation therapy, and had about a one-year disease-free interval. She recurred with, I think, incidental finding of two very small nodules in her lung, which she chose to have resected, and the pathological features were confirmed at that time to continue to be triple negative, and she again had additional nodules in her lung about four months later. So she was placed on capsidabine and bevacizumab. I'm curious about what happened to this lady in terms of the fact, Ruth, that she had resection, surgical resection of metastatic disease in the lung. We're actually in the middle of a huge project right now looking at resection of liver mets and colorectal cancer. We're developing a new tab that's going to be on adjuvant online to help manage those patients, believe it or not. Peter Ravden's working with us on that project. What do we know about surgical removal of pulmonary or hepatic mets in breast cancer? I think the data we have is all kind of anecdotal and retrospective, so it's very hard to make anything out of it. There certainly is some data suggesting that actually removing the actual breast lesion may actually have beneficial effects, but again, it's not randomized data. Have I done this? I've done this for patients. I think this patient, you probably wanted to make certain that it was obviously a recurrent breast cancer. I don't think that this was inappropriate, but I think overall she's proven what typically happens is that you go in and resect these lesions and then something else pops up somewhere else. So there are selective patients I've done it on, but I think overall there's really a positive data to support doing it. Chuck, how about you? Have you done it, for example, on a hepatic met? Occasionally, but usually when I've been pushed to do it, And what I did was I actually called Gabe Hortobagi because their data, which dates back into the 1980s on stage 4 NED, everybody keeps on alluding to that, that they have a 30% long-term disease control rate. And so I asked them, okay, how many of them were visceral as opposed to how many of them were chest wall metastases? The vast majority of them were chest wall and I pushed him to the wall and I said, well, how many livers are disease-free? And he said, vanishingly small. And these also were people who were chemo-naive, is that right? Yep, these were chemo-naive. Right. Yes. For this patient, the rationale was actually more that she was raising small children and was just hoping to have the good fortune to remain in a remission for a longer period of time. She did actually quite well on the chemotherapy, went into a complete clinical remission expectedly because she didn't have a high burden of disease at that time. She had what, lung disease? Lung disease and just very small nodules, like three or four seven millimeter nodules in the same area. And what was the schedule and the dose of the Cape Bev? 
She was on two weeks on, one week off of the Zalota, and her bevacizumab regimen changed. And I don't know if it really was just changing because of her traveling to Boca to that what was convenient or once she had had a response. So it really wasn't a real pattern that was obvious. She did well. She had some headaches, but was managed with minor analgesics. And she stayed on that therapy for nearly a year. She went into a remission after about five months and then was on that for a year before Any she Any problems with hypertension or CAPE-related problems? Only the headaches, and that was the capecitidine not. And I think that was particularly interesting because at her original presentation, she was actually under management for Crohn's disease, so I was pretty apprehensive that she wouldn't tolerate it, but she had no problems. Hmm. What was the next actually. point? So she developed a recurrence in the fall of 2007. Again, it was not particularly symptomatic. This is lung again? This is, again, in the same region of her lung, the same type of nodules, and, again, not really symptomatic, very closely followed. So before, I'd actually like to ask the faculty what they might have done at that point. Anything else you want to say about what was going on then? No, I just think you have to see the personality of this person. I mean, she is as vibrant and alive and raising these children and active and traveling all over the country to get her care as she is able to do that. So was highly motivated to stay well. So Chuck, what would you be thinking about for her at this point? And what do you think about the issue of Cape Bev in general? How do you dose and schedule it? Do you actually use that combination? Well, I used it as part of the Ribbon 1 trial. We had a choice of different drugs to use in Ribbon 1, and I like capecitabine in general. And so I started out, most of my patients on Ribbon 1 were on capecitabine with either bevacizumab or placebo. The bulk of those patients recurred. I do have one lady out at two years, and I did have another one-year responder. But among another eight or nine, they recurred, and when they were put on a Braxane bevacizumab open label, they all responded, every one of them. So the initial capecitabine bevacizumab trial in taxane refractory patients did not meet its progression-free survival endpoint. And so then people started to think, well, let's do it in first line. So then they did the Excalibur study, and the results were underwhelming, with a little bit of an aside that maybe the estrogen receptor positive patients did a little bit better than the estrogen receptor negative patients. So if you look at bevacizumab across the board, what you have is the Avado trial with docetaxel, the results of which were positive but underwhelming. And I think that the results so far, we're waiting for the Ribbon 1 data to come out with capecitabine, but I don't see why it should be any different than the other two. So right now, if I'm going to give bevacizumab on the basis of data available, I will give it with paclitaxel. I would use NAB paclitaxel even in the absence of data, but I would use it only with paclitaxel. So at this point with this woman having disease progression on Cape Bev, what do you think you most likely would do? Well, the two best responses that I've had in triple negative disease have been with CMF. And you can dredge up all of the other thoughts that you're supposed to think about, platinum salts, these triple negatives are supposed to be EGFR positive. The two trials with Herbitux were really not particularly exciting. So I don't really think that we have any positive studies in triple negative disease that excite me so far. I had another strange case where 
I had to treat the lady with something very non-toxic because she had just had a CVA after surgery for brain met. So I put her on Zolota and her liver mets melted away. And just to go back a little bit, there are triple negatives and then there are triple negatives. There are the horrible ones and I've got a couple in my practice right now. But in my entire population, I've got 60 triple negative women who are disease-free at varying time points over the years. And I've got four or five of these absolutely horrible ones. And this one is somewhere in the middle because she's relapsing with a pattern that almost speaks for a hormonally sensitive type disease. Slow, not very aggressive, asymptomatic recurrences. That isn't like the lady with a nine centimeter tumor growing out of her chest wall like I got right now. So this lady has something different. Ruth, what would you be thinking about? So I think one of the things about this case that is interesting, she's a BRCA1 mutation carrier, correct? Okay. So I think that this would be a patient where you might suspect that platinums might have some activities. So if I was just going to go with standard chemotherapy, I'd probably use a platinum-based regimen. We've used gem cisplatin a little bit in these patients and got some responses. The other thing, though, is obviously this lady would be eligible for one of the PARP inhibitor trials because there is currently one open that's a multi-center trial for patients that are BRCA1 mutation carriers and have triple negative breast cancer. Can you explain what the PARP inhibitors are? PARP is involved in DNA repair, and what's been shown preclinically is that if you have BRCA1 mutant cell lines, that they're particularly sensitive to PARP inhibition. And from discussing, I've sent a patient up for one of these trials, and apparently the results are really very impressive. They're able to use low dose of the PARP inhibitors, which are really not toxic, and they've really seen very good responses so far. Well, we haven't seen it presented, but that's what I've heard. Are there a bunch of them or just one? The one that's open now is single-agent PARP inhibitor. And is it oral or IV? Oral. The next step will be to look at them with platinums. So would you be thinking about that right now or maybe a little bit later? I think you could think about it now or later. I would probably at least send her up for a consultation. But I think the thing about this lady is that she had a very nice response to the chemotherapy bevacizumab. So I think it would be very reasonable to give another line of chemotherapy here. And I think the other question that comes up is whether you would continue the bevacizumab or not. And of course, that's another huge area that we don't know the answer to. I think we're all kind of struck by the somewhat strange findings that you have this huge time to progression advantage in ECOG 2100, but no survival advantage. And that begs the question of, does something bizarre happen to the cancer when you stop the bevacizumab? And there is some preclinical data suggesting that there may be some kind of, if you like, withdrawal effect. Rebound VEGF. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that's a question. I probably wouldn't continue the bevacizumab, but I wouldn't, if she really wants to continue it, I'm not sure that I would be completely against it. Chuck, in this room, just about a month ago, we had our colon think tank, and Axel Grothy was there, and also Dan Haller from the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and Lee Ellis, and all three of them said Axel's paper is about to be published on the bright tumor registry in colon cancer, showing what seemed to be an advantage. Granted, it was a registry of continuing bevacizumab, and actually Dan and Lee said, well, we're writing the editorial for that, and that just got published, I think, or e-published in the last week or so. What's your take about this issue of continuation of BEV, VEGF rebound, what they saw in colon, and what you do? The Virgo registry is going to be the bright registry for breast cancer, and we just activated that trial. For this particular lady... That's interesting. So they're going to look at the same thing? Or they're going to follow patients on BEV with breast cancer? They're going to follow everybody. They have a cohort of patients who are... Any newly diagnosed breast cancer patient 
metastatic who is going to get treated, be it hormonal, be it chemo, be it chemo plus BEV, Hmm. are going to be followed with a thought in mind probably to hopefully duplicate the data on the BRIGHT trial. Wow, interesting. Ribbon 3 has been on the drawing board for a long time and is supposed to be a BEV beyond progression concept, and I haven't even seen a design yet. This particular lady, she's behaving in a very different way, and it sounds as though she's very motivated, and I don't know how much she wants to keep her hair or not keep her hair. I would agree with Ruth that the PARP inhibitor might really be a good study for her right now. What exactly is seen in terms of side effects and toxicity with the with PARP? PARP inhibitor? Yeah, I don't know. I can't get hold of it. So you <laughs> haven't treated anybody with it, have you, Ruth? No. The patient that I've had on, no side effects. I mean, really nothing. It starts at a low dose, and then if they progress, they can go to a higher dose because they saw some response in the ovarian cancers with that. So I don't know about the higher dose in terms of side effects. Do you want to continue on? So in December, she traveled to New York and was seen at Memorial Sloan Kettering and was actually their first patient to enroll in the PARP inhibitor trial. Didn't she get treated, though, before that? I thought she got Taxol and Bev. No, she was offered it, but she did not go oh, on it. So, so she, her, went, her, from she went from Cape and Bev to Memorial. Right. Okay, so just what we've been talking about. So she's been on that therapy now for 10 months. She has absolutely no side effects. She just hosted a luncheon at the Emmys and did a rock concert in Boca Raton hosting that, being on active therapy. She's had an improvement in each of her imaging studies. She has an 80% response rate thus far to the measurable disease in her lungs, has all of her hair, has got a physical trainer that's got her looking better than me (laughs) my whole life. So yeah, she's doing extremely well on the treatment. And I think it is a very promising agent in this setting, though you have to wonder if there is that subgroup of biology that is making her a patient who's more likely to benefit from it. But she's had significant tumor response. Right, 80%. 80%. And that's just, again... And is continuing on therapy, single-agent PARP inhibitor. And this is her third line. What do we know about PARP inhibitors outside the BRCA patients? Or has that been looked at at all? At least clinically, we know nothing at this point. And I think we know that the BRCA mutation carriers have a deficient BRCA in their tumors. But also, I think there is emerging data suggesting that spontaneous triple negative cancers, also some of them have low BRCA1 levels. One of the problems is that the IHC test for BRCA1 is actually very difficult to do, so it's been kind of hard to look at. There's also some indication that there may be methylation of BRCA1 in some triple negative cancers. So I think the next step with this has to be to try and work out are there BRCA1 deficient cancers that are not in BRCA1 mutation carriers and then look at these agents in those patients. But there is plans for that, but I'm not aware that there's any trials open right now. I also think the most promising is going to be in combination of chemotherapy because when you look at the mechanism of action, you would think it would be greatly enhanced by DNA damaging drugs. Platinums, yeah. I guess the other thing about this is it brings in the issue of phase one and two trials in patients and where, I mean, this patient... This has got entered onto a study of a novel agent kind of early in her clinical course and yet had tremendous benefit. Chuck, what about the phase one and two studies? Or you were talking about TDM1. It's available today compared to 10 years ago. My impression is that maybe there's more opportunity for the patient to benefit, maybe less downside. Is that your take? Well, it's really hard to say. Certainly, there are some exciting Results, as I mentioned before, with neratinib and with TDM1, 
with 30% response rates. We're used to phase one trials with 1%, 2% response rates. I mean, we don't usually bring up the possibility of benefit even when we talk to patients about that. That's what I mean is the paradigm changing. The paradigm is changing now that we are getting wiser with targeted therapies. So I think that there is more of an opportunity for benefit with some of these targeted agents that are really specifically targeted. Here we're talking HER2. When we start talking about the broad array of anti-angiogenesis drugs, the IGFR inhibitors, we still don't know that much about those. Any other new agents out there? We've talked about a couple of them where there's any kind of excitement or you know, maybe responses that are creating excitement. Chuck, anything else? Well, among the chemo drugs, Exempra, taking a look at their subset of triple negative patients, there seem to be reasonable response rates with Exempra in triple negatives. What do you see with that agent in your practice? We've had a lot of toxicity on the three-week dosing, and I'm thinking about moving to weekly, even though there are very few data available for weekly Exempra. This is neuropathy? Fatigue, severe fatigue, and neuropathy primarily. Ruth, what's your experience with X? I agree, and I think it's because of where we use it. I found probably more neuropathy than anything else in these patients, and not a huge amount of activity, but again, it's always one of these things where if you use it so later on, because in the study they used anthracitine taxane resistant, I've probably been using it in patients like fourth or fifth line, so I don't think it's really fair to judge it on efficacy in that group. What would you be thinking about, Louise, if this patient does develop progressive disease on the PARP inhibitor? Well, you know, it would be lovely if they would allow her to add a chemotherapy to that, but I don't know, like a platinum, and that would probably be mm. my first preference. But I think given where we are in the clinical trial settings, we're going to be looking at a platinum-based or even a CMF, depending on her quality of life, because it's so great. I'd love to see her try to do something like that. But I think that's exactly where to be right now is anticipating that that question will arise and being able to respond with that. And like I said, they will allow that increased higher-dose PARP inhibitor when she progresses, because that's what happened to my patient. So I also, given everything that was said here, would wonder just in the speculation line about us trying to move more of our clinical trials to a preoperative setting. Because this group of patients who get a pathological CR, no matter what their prior features are, seem to do so very well. And the patients who don't seem to do quite poorly. And to be able to give them an alternative, even upfront salvage regimen might be a faster way to study some of these regimens than our current paradigm of waiting for relapse and then having trial after trial after trial. It's not that I can voice the shift, but I mean, you think that this preoperative therapy might be something to consider in these patients. 